The title of today's teaching is Why We Cannot Stay Silent. I'm continuing down this path with the why questions, although it's kind of an exclamation point on the end of the statement. It's not necessarily a question today. Why we cannot stay silent. Um, I, I have a couple comments that I want to make, though, before I kind of talk about that topic. And first off, this week was a little crazy for me. I was teaching a speech class for first graders, and they asked me to teach music as well. And they said, you're going to need to sing in front of these kids and in front of this teacher. And I was like, oh my goodness. And <laughs> and so I finally got through that. I had a 30-minute music class that I had to sing with them for 30 minutes. And I was like, is this ever going to end? And I was also approached by the principal, and she said, we want you to do a play and dress up as a cowboy later on in the week. And I was like, you have to be kidding me. And so I had to do seven skits, seven plays on Thursday and Friday in front of all the staff, all the teachers are watching, I'm dressing up as a cowboy, singing in front of them. This is like totally out of my comfort zone, right? And I'm praying like throughout the week, Lord, help me to do this with joy. Help me to serve these kids. That's why I got this job, to serve these kids, to reach out to them. And it was a struggle all week, preparing, I'm studying my notes and my lines and the songs, and I had this fake little guitar that I'm walking in there singing on, and I'm like, oh my goodness, hopefully none of the pictures are anywhere online or anything like that. But, you know, there's, we laugh, and it was, at the end of the day, I had a good time and tried to make the best of it. But there's things in our life that really can attack our joy, and there's things in our life to where it can cause us to complain or grumble or really, why do I have to go through this? And instead, by God's grace, I was able to give him thanks and rejoice and say, okay, Lord, I might look like a fool. Whatever happens, I'm leaving it up to you. And so it just made me think, what in your life today perhaps is causing you to complain or grumble or something in your life to where you're like, Lord, allow me to have joy and give you thanks through this. And another thing I wanted to talk about before I get right into the message and I almost did a whole nother teaching on what is preaching. And we already talked about that a couple weeks ago. What is preaching? We looked at 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I actually met with the Calvary Chapel star pastor this week. He reached out to me. Uh, we talked on the phone a little bit. And he said, hey, Nick, if you're willing, let's go grab a bite to eat. And so I went to lunch with him. And we talked a little bit. But before we went to lunch, I watched a couple of his sermons online. I wanted to see what he preached and... What, what he was saying about God's word. And I told him that as well. I said, I watched two of your sermons. And he was like, uh-oh. And he did good. And he loves the Lord. And that was pretty cool that he reached out to me and said he's praying for me, praying for our ministry, hoping that uh, we continue to build the kingdom of God and do his work. And But I did listen to two of his messages. And then someone sent me a message from Eagle Christian Church. And so I listened to a message from that church. And then Someone gave me a book some time ago uh, from Charles Spurgeon, and it's sermons from Charles Spurgeon. And so I read a sermon of Charles Spurgeon's. And then I just, I've been thinking about, I was actually counting last night, how many sermons of Pastor Joe's that I've heard in my life. And I was thinking, okay, how many Sundays are there in a year? And how many Wednesday nights? And multiply that by this, how many decades was I at Blessed Hope for? And the number is probably around 1,500 to 2,000 sermons, maybe, over the course of decades that I've heard of Pastor Joe's. And I wish I took better notes over the years, right? Because there's just so much that 
he's given many of us that have come from Blessed Hope Simi and so many things that we're just indebted to him, at least I am, for his knowledge of the word and his ability to see things in the scripture that many of us, or at least myself, as I'm, li- I'm like, I've never seen that before in the word of God, or how did he make that connection, or what about that type and shadow in the Old Testament? How It's just amazing. But it got me thinking, there's so many different ways to preach. I mean, how many minutes are we to preach for? Do we preach 30 minutes, 60 minutes, 75 minutes, an hour and a half? I mean, how many... Greek words are we to talk about as I read the word of God or Hebrew words? How many of those should I break down? Or how many analogies or metaphors or how many illustrations? Is five illustrations a good number? Is six? Is seven too much? Well, it depends on who you ask. And what about news stories or or cultural events? How many of those should we include in our teachings? And exactly how should I put together the teaching? Should I type it out? Should I write it? Should I handwrite it with my sloppy notes that I can barely read at times? Uh, Bullet points, write the whole thing out. How much eye contact and hand gestures and the list goes on and on, right? It's like, what makes a good sermon? And it all depends on who you ask and what book you read and who, what pastor you talk to. And when it's kind of my job now to preach and teach the word of God, it's like these are important questions to ask. And when you go to the word of God, there's not necessarily verses on all these things. Like, hey, if you're going to pastor a church, this is how long the message should be. So if, come, if someone comes up to you and they're like, well, that was too short or that was too long or that one had too much of this, you just point them to the word of God and say, well, this is what it says. And the point being is God gave his church and he gave pastors and preachers a lot of flexibility because he knew in his foreknowledge i believe that the word of god would go out throughout the whole world to every tribe tongue people nation group and all these different cultures there's different factors that play into all these different people groups and some of them have long attention spans and shorter attention spans and some of them maybe have fragments of the word of god or all of the word of god or they can There's just so many things that play into their ability to comprehend or listen to or grow in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. And so God gives each teacher and preacher the ability and the freedom to work within these restraints. The main thing is keeping the word of God at the front and center. Amen. Keeping Jesus and magnifying him, glorifying him, keeping the gospel first, and being spirit-led. And so for me, at the end of the day, that's what it amounts to. God, what do you want me to say? How do you want me to preach? Help me to be spirit-led. Help me to meet people's needs. Now, Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So in one sense, we're not to please man. We're just to please God, an audience of one, to serve him. But what makes it difficult is we want to reach people where they're at, and we want to bless people, and we want them to hear the word of God, understand the word of God, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. We want them to be encouraged and strengthened. And for some people, they're like, a message like this will really strengthen me. And other people are further along in their walk, and they're like, this is what will really strengthen me. So someone new might come in and go, wow, that all went over my head. They might hear Pastor Joe's sermon for the first time and like deer in the headlights, crossed eyes, not understand anything. And someone else in the church for 30 years is going, that was a great message. I am totally edified. I'm on fire for the Lord. I'm ready to go serve him and grow in his word. And so 
what I'm trying to say as well is that I can't please everyone, right? And that's part of being a teacher, is you just have to love God, love his people, love his word, and leave the rest to him. Amen. And so that's what I try to do. And so pray for me that I'll continue to do that to the best of my ability as adequately as I can in the days ahead. I'm just a table waiter. I'm like, here's the food. I don't want to get in the way. I don't want to drop it on the way. I'm saying, here, it's really good. It's tasty. It's excellent. You're going to love it. It's an eight-course meal. And I'm kind of worried. Like, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to drop it. I don't want to throw it into your lap. I just want you to see it, taste it, savor it, enjoy it, and live it out. And that's the job of the pastor, the preacher. So why we cannot stay silent. The culture that we live in has infiltrated the church. If you guys remember the video that Pastor Joe did, the submerging church, perhaps you've seen it, maybe you haven't, but it's infiltrating much of the evangelical, as they call it, church. And Pastor Joe's mentioned the illustration of the frog in the pot and how you turn up the heat and the frog thinks it's like a jacuzzi and he's just relaxing and, oh, this is nice and comfortable. And before you know it, the heat just keeps getting turned up. And I think you can actually do this. I wouldn't try it at home with an actual frog, but it's, it's a true illustration in that the frog will just think everything's good and dandy until it's boiling and it's too late and it's dead. And that's what the Christian church seems to be in our culture. And the people are too scared to offend nowadays. They're too compromised to, com- to proclaim the truth and too rich to see that they're utterly poor. And the words of Jesus, I believe, I believe, ring true in the church today. And he said this to the Laodicean church. He says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you did not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. They're blinded by the fact of the reality in front of them that they're poor and miserable and naked and the riches have got in the way. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some who have longed for it have pierced themselves with many griefs and have wandered from the faith. And so many of us, we have comfortable lives. Compared to the rest of the world, everyone in this room is rich. We're all rich. We all have blind spots and we need to allow God's word to speak to our hearts. And when these passages we read, it's easy for us to go, yeah, that's probably that church over there. That's that person over there. That's that family. Instead of say, Lord, show me where my blind spots are. Show me if these riches or these comforts or these things of the world are actually grabbing a hold of my heart and hindering me from living out God's word and using my gifts to serve him. One article that I read titled, where Christian churches' other religions stand on gay marriage, stated that 63% of mainline Protestants say there is no conflict between their religious beliefs and homosexuality. 63% of supposed Protestants say there's no conflict between their Christian faith and homosexuality. They just go together. Perhaps you've heard of the billboards that have gone up across the country in several states, funded by none other than Governor Gavin Newsom. Uh, These billboards state, need an abortion? California is ready to help. And underneath the words are found the words of Jesus in Mark 12, 31. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. These are being funded by Governor Gavin Newsom and put up in states across the country. And he's using the words of Jesus to promote the slaughtering of his innocent children in the womb. I mean, he doesn't see the hypocrisy, the contradiction, to put the verse, love your neighbor as yourself. What is the most loving thing that we can do, especially towards these babies in the womb? It's to protect them. It's to allow them to live. It's to not kill them. It's so obvious, yet people are blinded, as God's word says. They are blinded by the enemy. They're blinded by their sin. They're blinded by their love for darkness. And how do we love these women that are even contemplating abortion? We love them by telling them the truth. We love, by, we love them by sharing the gospel with them. We love them by giving them the resources, walking alongside them, offering them help, helping them find adoption if they don't want to keep this unborn baby. That's what we do. That's what love does. So we do need to pray for our leaders. I mean, he's not our leader here. Thank goodness for that, right? But we need to pray for these people. God can save these people and they do need to repent. Matthew 18, 6 says, says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it's better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. That's amazing. How much worse judgment for those who promote or take part in slaughtering innocent children, innocent babies in the womb. So we cannot stay silent as a church. And if we don't talk about these things, if we don't hear about these things, we can become indifferent to these things. And we can act like they're not happening in the world, and we can just go through our lives as we do, and we can do what I call the Christian huddle, is when we get together and we just stay huddled up. And imagine that at a football game, if they just stayed in the huddle the whole time. It's like, come on, time to break. It's like, no, let's just stay here. We love each other. You guys are great. It's like, no, we got to get... There's. There's an opponent out there. There's a game to be played. And it's the same thing for us. Like, it's much easier for us to just do this, right? To get together, to worship God. Like, I could get in the routine of this and enjoy it and enjoy the fellowship with you guys. But God's telling us to get out, to spread the gospel, to confront the enemy, to pray, to give, to go. And that looks differently for many of us. But listen to Proverbs 31, 8 and 9. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Proverbs 24.11, rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. This morning I went to a website titled abortionfinder.org. You can type in your state and see how many abortion clinics are there. I typed in Idaho. This is what popped up. Quote, abortion is completely banned in Idaho due to a new law that has gone into effect. It is legal to travel out of the state to get an abortion. So though there are no Planned Parenthoods to my knowledge in Idaho, though it is against the law, praise God for that. That's awesome. People can still travel right over the border. They can go to Washington where there's over 20 Planned Parenthoods and get an abortion over there. And also, there are exceptions in this state for rape, incest, and a person's 
life. And so I saw an exchange um, between Joe Rogan and the creator of the Babylon Bee online, and they were going back and forth on the pro-life issue. And Joe Rogan was trying to press him on these emotional arguments of rape and incest and all these other things. And at the end of the day, he said, is it a life or not? If it's a life, then we don't kill life. As emotional as it is, and as, and as hard as that would be, I can't even imagine, is it a baby or not? And if it's a baby, like Ray Comfort says in the movie 180, it's, he goes up to people and he says, it's okay to kill a baby when? And he says, fill in the blank. It's okay to kill a baby when? And people are like, they're thinking, and they're thinking, and they're, wow, that's, oh. And I actually went online to buy a bunch of those, because I'm like, I want to go hand some of those out. And I was going to buy like 100, and it was like 250 bucks. And I'm like, that's a little much, so maybe I'll rethink how I do this. Um, maybe I'll just tell them, you know, the arguments myself, rather than hand out these DVDs. But nevertheless, there's, we're in, we're in a spiritual battle, right? And we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. And we can forget that, right? We can forget the spiritual war that's going on. We need to stay in prayer and we need to get out and do something. According to LazierInstitute.org, more than 800,000 lives have been saved via pro-life pregnancy centers since 2016. 800,000 babies that are now alive, now given a chance at life because men and women are serving in this area. There's more than 2,700 pro-life pregnancy centers with community-based support being offered through nearly 15,000 staff members, almost 54,000 volunteers, 10,000 licensed medical professionals. Praise God for those that are fighting these battles that are on the front lines, that are speaking out and opening their mouths for the mute. Praise God for that. Now, abortion's not the only issue. It's a huge issue. It's one of the biggest in our day. But I believe at the root of the tree, of all the horrific issues of our day, lies the statement, men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil. Abortion's just a manifestation of that. Homosexuality or sexual immorality is another manifestation of that. Greediness, drunkenness, outbursts of anger, murder, idolatry, and the list goes on of all the sins could be the branches of the trees. The bottom of the tree is that men love darkness. They're running from the Lord. They're living for themselves. And so what are we going to do about it? How do we go about chopping down this tree, so to speak? We have to go with the gospel, right? the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the power of salvation. That's why we're here. That's why we're saved. That's why we're able to proclaim this message. It's a testimony of who we are in Christ, the good news that Jesus Christ left heaven where he was comfortable, where he was ruling and reigning, where he was being worshiped. And Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself. He became like a bondservant. He left the luxuries of heaven for us. And so now we need to leave the luxuries of our lives and the comfortableness, so to speak, of our lives, and we need to get out and speak. We need to get out and do something. People need to hear the message. It's not enough to just say, don't kill these innocent babies. It's not enough to say, don't practice homosexuality. It's not enough to say, don't commit adultery or don't be a thief. Or We're just putting a Band-Aid on the problem. 
that's what they tried to do at my last job. Well, just let's help them get off drugs. And then maybe down the road, we'll tell them Jesus loves them. And it's like, no, we need to start with the gospel. Paul said, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Judgment upon me, calamity upon me if I don't preach the gospel. 1 Corinthians 9, 16. We talked about Acts chapter 4 last week. Peter and John, they were arrested, being persecuted. And they said in Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Nothing was going to stop them from proclaiming the gospel. And many of them gave their lives. Many in the early church gave their lives. Many around the world are willing to give their lives for the gospel right now. They're going to church in many countries in the Middle East, not knowing if some suicide bomber is going to come in and blow up the place, or not know if, since they turned from being a Muslim to a Christian, if there's a bounty on their head and someone wants to kill them, yet they're still proclaiming Christ and still going to church. And for us, it can just be really easy sometimes. We don't have to deal with those things here in America. And so we need to be reminded of what our brothers and sisters in the past have gone through for the gospel and what many around the world are going through today as well. And it should cause us to be bold for Jesus and to live for him and to take risks for him and live radically for him. So does that mean we all need to go out and be street preachers? Does that mean if you're not being obedient unless you get out and stand on a, a, a foot pedestal and stand up in front of people and herald the gospel. If you don't do that, then you're not really on fire for the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. Some preach, some hand out tracts, some pray, some give. We all have a part, but we also can use excuses to not do what God's called us to do. And that's what God's been convicting me in lately. Well, I'm busy with work, Lord. I've got three kids. I'm, I'm busy putting together a message for Sunday. And I'm, I'm busy, you know, trying to get my license up here and figure out my utility bills and this and that. And there's like a million and one things that I can say, Lord, but I, and he's like, too bad. This is what I'm calling you to. Stay busy. Make, stay busy for me. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. We can make room for a lot of things in our life. And when it comes to the Lord's work, sometimes we just, we can find ways to justify it and push it to the side. And so that's how the Lord's been convicting me lately. I love what Keith Green said in his song, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful. He said, I want to take your word and shine it all around, but first help me just to live it, Lord. Some of us are like, I'm having a hard time living this thing out. It's hard enough to just fight the sin in my life and live with joy and keep my house in order, let alone get out and share the gospel and do something for him. And by God's grace, we can do both. By God's grace, we allow him to transform our lives, to live more on fire for him and holy lives before him, and then get out there and do something. And Satan wants us to to think, well, you, you can't really serve him because you did this or that, or you don't have that gifting, or he'll use whatever tactic he can to keep the church asleep, to keep the church comfortable, to keep the church in the holy huddle and not getting out and being the salt and the light in this world that God's called us to be. He could have saved us all and just brought us straight to heaven, but he's left us in this world for a purpose. He's left us in this world to get the good news out, to be salt and light. So continue to think and pray of ways that we can serve the community around us, ways in which we can get the gospel out. The Lord 
says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. So if you're like, well, I don't know that I'm going to go out. I don't know that I'm going to hand out tracts. I don't know that I'm going to preach. Are you at least beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send people? Are you crying out, Lord, I don't know if it's my gifting or I don't know if you've called me to do that, but please send people out to reach these Latter-day Saints. Please send people out to reach these students at Boise State and these other colleges. Please send people out to reach these mothers that are contemplating abortion and to speak out for those that are being slaughtered. That should be a daily prayer of ours. And some of us might say, but it's hard to get out and serve the Lord. That's, that's what's come through my mind at times. Nick, if you get up there and you street witness, what's going to happen to you? Jonathan Ball told me last time he was out here street witnessing, they called the cops on him and were right in his face cursing him out. Well, I don't want to go through that on a Friday night. I'd rather just sit with my family and relax and hang out and decompress from singing cowboy songs all day at my job, right? But it, it's hard. Christianity's hard. Jesus going to the cross for our sins, that was hard. But love was stronger. Love was greater. And so we need to follow that model. I think Great Comfort uses the illustration of if someone's they're in the snow and the river or the, the lake is all iced over and your child walks on that and falls into the freezing cold water, your first reaction is if I jump in and try to save them, something might happen to me. I might get stuck in the water as well. I might freeze to death. But he says, if what compels you to finally go and jump in the water and try to save your child? And he said, it's love, right? Your love for that child compels you to go. And same with the firefighter. The building's burning down and you're seeing people ready to jump out of the building and you know that if you run in, you might die. But what compels you to go? It should be love. Love for your job. Love. It should be love for people. And as Christians, that's what should compel us to go. It shouldn't be that we're so focused on attract or on the message per se. It should be that we're focused on loving people. People are hurting. People have no hope. People have no joy. People are lost and going to die. And we need to reach them with the truth of the gospel. And that's the most loving thing that we can do. Scripture says, do good to all men, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And sometimes we can overemphasize, especially those who are of the household of faith. At least I can. Like, that's where I'm at. Lord, I want to serve your church. I want to preach and teach to your church. I want to bless your church and get together with my brothers and sisters and, and grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and be unified. And then I can kind of underemphasize, do good to all men. Like, what am I doing for them out there? If the church is really being the church, what we do here motivates us to do what we're supposed to out there. The social gospel, if you've heard of it, says the good that we're to do is to clothe people. It's to feed them, to care for them, to meet their physical needs. That's the social gospel. And then you, you kind of just slap onto that Jesus loves you. And that's essentially what's in the submerging church and what Bono and Rob Bells and the Ryan, Brian McLarens and the others of this world are teaching. They put the physical first, and then if the gospel gets in there, it's way at the end, and most likely it's not even the true gospel. It's just a part of it. If you watch that video, Bono says in it, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, it's all true. 
And he says that one of his concerts, as he's pointing, I think, to this headband that says, Coexist, Jesus, Jew, Muhammad, it's all true. And that's the social gospel movement. We can all work together to feed the poor and clothe people and, and make sure that you know no one's going hungry anywhere in the world. And all these faiths are true and can work together and get this accomplish this goal. And is that the gospel? Is that what God's word says? No, we're to do both. Christians, we are concerned or should be concerned with all suffering. Not only physical suffering, but spiritual suffering. So we do both, right? We preach the gospel, we get the good news out, we preach the word of God, and we clothe people, and we care for people, and we feed people. And that's what we're called to do. But we don't want to put the cart before the horse. We want to make sure the gospel is at the front and center in all that we do. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, let's have a little reminder of the gospel. I've heard sermons before where they talk about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, and it's like, but what is the gospel? And many of us who have been in the church for many years, we know the gospel. The Corinthian church should have known the gospel because Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians 15, 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. So he already preached it to them. They already should know it by now. He goes on to say, which you also received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast. This is a verse that contributes to our theology that you can fall away from the faith. That big word, if. This is the salvation by which you stand, if you hold fast. What happens if, which is implied here, what happens if you don't hold fast? Then you're no longer saved because you've left your first love. So verse 2, which also you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That Greek word for first importance. It's the Greek word protos. It means principal, foremost, most important, chief. There's a lot of important things to do. Feeding the poor, clothing people, speaking out for the unborn, hugely important. Human trafficking, speaking out against homosexuality. You can probably list several others. But the first and most important thing is to preach the gospel, and that's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15. He goes on to say in verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. If Jesus is still in that grave, the whole house of cards comes crumbling down. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, what, what I'm doing right now is worthless. Us meeting together is worthless. Us talking about reaching the lost with the gospel is worthless. We're still in our sins. We're on our way to hell. There's no hope. That's a pretty big argument for the resurrection, wouldn't you say? That's a pretty big argument that Paul is putting his entire life and his entire ministry on the fact of the resurrection. Just let that sink in for a minute. Because many in the church even today, I believe, are living as if Christ is still in the grave. Heads are hung low. There's no joy. There's no... There's feels like it's void of the Holy Spirit, but we need to live in light of the empty 
tomb, that Jesus really did rise from the grave. Paul goes on to say in verse 30 of chapter 15, Why are we also in danger every hour? I'm not the only person that likes to ask the why questions. Why are we also in danger every hour? He goes on to say in verse 31, I protest, brethren, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. Verse 32, If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this tomb isn't empty, he's saying, what am I doing? This is foolishness. He says earlier, I'm of most men to be pitied. I've gone through so much for the gospel. He's saying, I go into this town, I get beat up. I go into this town, they're whipping me. I go into that town, they're throwing rocks at me. I get on a boat, it's shipwrecked. I'm often without sleep. I'm often without covering. I'm often without clothing. I'm often without food. People want to put me to death everywhere, yet I keep moving forward. I keep preaching the gospel. I keep serving the Lord. And he says, why? Why do I do this? Because Jesus rose from the grave. He conquered death, the gospel. He saved me from my sins. So I'm going to keep proclaiming this message and nothing is going to stop me. And that's why I love the Apostle Paul, one of my favorite people in the scriptures outside of Jesus Christ, because of his his longing and his desire to please the Lord with every part of his being. And he would not allow anything to get in the way of serving the Lord. And he goes, guess what? Don't just believe me that I saw Jesus. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, and he breaks it down in verses 5 and following, he appeared to Peter, he appeared to James, he appeared to the other disciples, he appeared to the other apostles. And guess what, Corinthians, there's still... 500 people, some of which who haven't passed away, there's still some of them that are alive that saw Jesus after the resurrection as well. There's a mountain of evidence for our faith. For those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, it's not a blind faith. And what Paul is doing here, he's making a logical argument throughout 1 Corinthians 15. And it's known in logic as the argumentum ad absurdum. It's the form of argument that attempts to establish a claim by showing that the opposite scenario would lead to absurdity or contradiction. His whole life would be a contradiction if the gospel wasn't true. Our whole lives would be a contradiction, or should be, by the way we're living, if the gospel is not true. So it should motivate us to get out, just like Jesus rose from that grave, the power of the gospel that rose. And Paul says in the book of Romans that that same power that rose Jesus from the grave lives in us. So if God can do that miraculous work in his son, what can God do through us when we submit to him, when we cry out to him? I love how Paul concludes his argument in verse 58 when he says, therefore, therefore, in light of this entire argument that Christ rose from the grave, we're going to rise with him. We're going to be in heaven with him. Death has lost its sting. There's, There's victory in Christ. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, therefore, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing your toil in the Lord is not in vain. So in light of the gospel being true, don't be moved from your secure position. Don't allow any sin. Don't allow any one. Don't allow any persecution. Don't allow any distractions. Anything to hinder you from abounding in your work in the Lord. So that's our question today. What is hindering us from abounding in the work of the Lord? 
What is it? Address it, give it to God, and say, Lord, help me to serve you no matter what it is. Every prayer prayed, every track handed out, every time you preach the gospel, every time you set up a chair, pass out communion, watch kids in nursery, play worship, set up equipment, preach a message, give financially, give of your time, give someone a cold drink, whatever it may be, remember it's not done in vain. Your work and your toil in the Lord has a purpose. And how many of us can under, underestimate what an encouraging word can do in someone's life, what a hug can do, what a text message, a phone call, just being there and giving someone a listening ear. The question is, are we available? Are we willing to serve the Lord? Because we all play a part. I think it was someone at Blessed Hope that said, one of the deacons or ushers gave them a hug when they came in and they just felt so unloved that day. They felt like their whole life was falling apart and no one loved them and the deacon gives them a hug and they just burst into tears. And it was just something that they needed to feel Christ's love. Now what if that deacon was like, oh, I, I'm not Pastor Joe and I don't preach messages like Pastor Joe and I haven't brought a thousand people, millions of people or however many it's been to the Lord. I can't compare. There's nothing I have to offer. I don't even want to be a deacon or I don't want to be an usher. I don't want to serve then they've missed out, and that person's missed out. And so God has gifted us all in many different ways to serve him. Don't underestimate how the Lord can use you, and may we not live in a state of guilt, a state of comparing ourselves, or feeling less than because we haven't accomplished or thought that we've accomplished what others have. I know I've been there. I look at all these TV preachers that say that... that claim to love the Lord and seem like they do and are having ministries reaching the world and sitting under Pastor Joe and seeing all his fruit and having friends in the ministry that just seem like they're doing so many amazing things and meeting the Calvary Chapel star pastor and he's like, we're starting 17 ministries and people are flooding through the doors and it's as if the whole Treasure Valley is coming out to hear my sermons. And he didn't say it like that. He was a really nice guy. But it's like, wow, look at what they're all doing. And it's like, Lord... I'm just struggling to preach a message and get it put together for the saints. Like, I'm, I'm just struggling to love my wife at times and my kids and be the father that you've called me to be, Lord. And the Lord's just been convicting me. Stop comparing yourself over and over. He's just, give what you have and serve me. Leave the rest to me. May we do that. Use me, send me, help me be your hands and feet, Lord. That should be our prayer. I was looking up a lot of statistics last night, and my heart was really heavy as I was reading up on these statistics, but I think that we need to hear them. According to World Worldometer or worldometers.info, 32 million plus abortions have occurred in the world this year. 32 million. That's 125,000 per day. That's more than one every second. So if you go to that website, you can see the tally, and you can't even keep up with it, because every second. I can't even comprehend that number. You feel like, what can I even do? Like, there's, that there's that many abortions going on. And it can be paralyzing at times. I went to safehorizon.org. It said one million children are trafficked for commercial sexual exploitation every year. Another thing, if you just think about it for a couple minutes, can be paralyzing. These innocent children who are having to go through this. 
I went to addictioncenter.com and found out that 21 million Americans have at least one addiction. Drug overdose deaths have more than tripled since 1990. 130 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. Then I looked up an article by the Washington Post from August 11, 2017. It was titled, titled One in Eight American Adults is an Alcoholic. And I don't think that number has dropped. Then you think about all the kids that are being indoctrinated in many of the school systems today. You think about the colleges that are just indoctrinating young adults and telling everyone they're just slime and goo and animals and that they have no purpose. And so atheism and secularism are on the rise in our country. And according to Pew Research, an article December 12, 2019, the U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. The U.S. has the world's highest rate of children living in single-parent households. I was one of them. That's not God's design. God can still work in the midst of that. He can still use amazing fathers or mothers who are raising children in a single-family household to do amazing things for the Lord. But nevertheless, that's not his will. That's not his plan. Almost a quarter, one in four U.S. children under the age of 18 live with one parent and no adults. One out of every four children. According to NAMI.com, 40 million adults in the U.S. have an anxiety disorder. And I could give many, many more statistics and many more articles, but I believe that's sufficient. What's the point? People are hurting. People need help. People need hope. People are lost. This world is a mess. And the reason that we're here, the reason that God has not taken us up to heaven, is to be his love to the world, to be his light to the world, to be salt in this world. And we have the answer. His name is Jesus, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. The one who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest the one of whom it said in Matthew 12:20, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not extinguish till he leads justice to victory. The one who said in Matthew 19:14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. I love that picture. I love seeing Jesus sitting there and these parents longing to bring their children to him, and the disciples rebuking these parents, saying, no, 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 no. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. He does not have time for children. And I love how Jesus rebukes them and says, no, let the little children come to me. And he blesses them in his arms. Jesus is the one who said in John 4, 4, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. He said in John 7, Verses 37 and 38, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. People are drinking from broken cisterns out there. They're looking for love, as it said, in all the wrong places. They're empty. They need Christ's love. They need his hope. They need his joy. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and life abundantly. He saved us so that we would have the abundant life, the joy-filled life. 
that we would be overflowing with his Holy Spirit. And if we're not, we need to cry out to him that we would be. Because when he says he wants us to have the abundant life, that's why he's come. And if we don't, then something's not adding up in this equation. Something's wrong, right? And if we're not living the abundant life, if we're not filled with joy, if we're not overflowing with love for God and so in awe of the good news, then how is it going to carry over into the lives of others? Revelation twenty-two seventeen: The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take water of life without cost. So maybe this isn't just a message for the world. It's a message for us, a reminder for us to return to the Lord, to cast whatever sin, whatever weight, whatever distraction aside and come to the living water and drink of him so that we'll never thirst again. So in closing, we cannot stay silent. We have the cure. We have the remedy. We have the answer. How could we hide it? How could we but keep quiet? We must speak up. So to circle back, to that verse in Mark, to love our neighbor. How do we do that? By speaking out for those who can't. By rescuing those who are being led to the slaughter. By heralding the message that our Savior lives, that the tomb is empty, that Jesus reigns and he's returning. And that he's returning to judge this world, that the wrath of God is coming. We must tell God, we must tell people about the wrath of God. We must tell people judgment is coming. And then we present them with the good news then we present them with the gospel and it's much sweeter and it's they're much more ready to embrace it and cling to it when they understand the predicament that they're in and that's the reason that we should be clinging to it all the more ourselves so may we echo that call to the world while we still have hope and realize that Jesus's heart is that none would be lost but that all would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth and if we don't speak out then who will Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we live in a wicked world. Lord, it's all around us, even though at times we don't see it. We're in a spiritual battle. Lord, we live, many of us, comfortably compared to the rest of the world. We're rich, Lord, compared to many people. And yet, Lord, we rejoice that you've blessed us in many ways. We're thankful, Lord, that you've given us so much. But Lord, we ultimately thank you for our salvation. We thank you for what you've done in Christ, in our lives. Through him, Lord, we are saved. We cling to the cross. We thank you, Lord, that we're saved from hell, saved from the consequences of our sin. And Lord, you've saved us to give us the abundant life. Lord, help us to live in abundance, the abundance in you, the joy in you. Lift our heads, Lord, to heaven, fix, so that we may fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would speak. I pray that you would specifically tell all of us, speak to us through your word and an impression of the Holy Spirit, how you want to use us, Lord, in this world, in this church. And then when you do tell us, Lord, and you do show us, may we be obedient to that call. We love you, Lord. May you use us. May you receive the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.